I think with moments of failure and conflict, they're really tense when you run existing revenue, when you run a customer experience team, but they're also like relationship formational moments where like when you can get through it with a customer, you like come out more on the same team and you can't get through those moments if you're not able to connect it back to their business and their problem. Today, I'm talking to Gillian Heltai, Chief Customer Officer at Lattice. Gillian and I worked together at Lattice. She joined us around our Series C and helped build our customer experience department. Welcome back to Grow & Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of the revenue leaders behind today's successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakoff. As Gillian puts it, she worked in customer success long before they called it customer success. She spent the first decade of her career at Comscore, growing from an entry-level data analyst all the way to the senior VP of digital media solutions. She then spent three years at TalkDesk, where she led client services for their 1,800 customers. And now at Lattice, Gillian has built an award-winning customer experience program from the ground up. Gillian joined me today to talk about Lattice's approach to customer segmentation, why Lattice has separate success and onboarding teams, and why Lattice invests so heavily into advisory services. She's really a pro's pro when it comes to customer success. I hope you enjoy today's chat. So you started your career at Comscore, where you went from kind of an entry-level analyst to an SVP over the 10 years that you were there. Can you talk about your experience at Comscore and what did customer success actually look like there? Because it was more of a services business, right? Yeah, I mean, parts of it were. So I joined Comscore right out of undergrad in 2005. It was probably about maybe 250 employees at the time. And this is like, again, like sort of mid 2000s. I was in Virginia. It was a venture capital funded startup, but like neither of those words were like remotely in my nomenclature. I didn't know what VC was. They were a thing in California by then, but they weren't really on the East Coast. So I joined not really knowing at all what I was getting myself into. Again, like sort of fresh college grad a little bit, sort of about my time there. I started in 2005. We IPO'd two years later, um, which was right before the global financial crisis and recession. So we had tons and tons of growth. We had like a bunch of acquisitions, over a half dozen acquisitions. We also had a big layoff at one point or a couple after the recession And then what Comscore did at the time was internet media measurement. And the iPhone came out, like I think, within days of us IPOing. So I was also there for this period of time where we were shifting from web to mobile and app. So there was just like a ton, ton, ton of transition and growth and pivots during that period in terms of like what services looked like there. So Customer success is another word that wasn't actually in my nomenclature, or I think anyone's at that point. I think the term customer success was first coined in like the late 90s and then made famous by Salesforce, not until like mid to late 2000s. So we just called it client services. And like I said, Comscore was an internet media measurement company. Basically, what we had was tons and tons of data. Uh, although most of our revenue did come from a subscription business, but it was like a data access platform. So what client services looked like there was helping people use our data, storytelling to them so that they could get value out of it, like sort of market research-esque work. But at the end of the day, it was helping 
our customers get value out of our product, which, you know, is a sort of natural extension uh, or entry point into customer success as a, as a job category. And what did that actually look like? So you, I assume you kind of had a book of business that you were managing as like a, I guess it wasn't called customer success, like account director or whatever it was. And then I researching for this, I found a bunch of research reports that like you wrote about like YouTube measurement or things like that. So yeah, so you're managing a book of business and then yeah. sharing reports with people and trying to just fine tune their media spend. Is that kind of what it was like? Yeah. I mean, so it sort of depends. So we were, we were verticalized like from when I first started. So I shifted through a couple different vertical sectors for most of my time. They're focused either on the banking sector, mobile banking, which was not really a thing and then became a massive thing. And then telecommunication and mobile. I mean, you've been at a startup like Lattice. We'll get to Lattice later, but there were just so many different jobs. My title changed all the time as a like customer success person or a client service person, you had a book of accounts that you were responsible for servicing a lot of custom deliverable work. So we would have a big growth revenue stream for us was people would have the subscription data. And then it would naturally drive incremental questions about their business, about their competitors' business, what have you. And so a big part of the work was understanding that, scoping it, Eventually, once I moved into sales, like pricing and selling that, but then ultimately delivering these projects and custom reports. And then we did a lot of like industry writing as well, um, which was mostly to try to get into our brand out there, but also to get into conferences for free as industry analysts. So I was publishing a couple of reports a year, just trying to get Comscore brand out and yeah, just to sort of like be relevant in the industry. And then you had like, I mean, tremendous personal growth there. I mean, you were there for 10 years. It went from like, I guess, yeah, your first job out of college and then you were an SVP and you had a a lot of different roles along the way. Like, what was that journey like for you on a personal level? And and you you had a stop kind of along the way where you went to Stanford Business School. And I'm curious, like how you thought about that decision and why you did that. And yeah, I'd love to learn more. So I was at Comscore for seven years before I went to business school. And those seven years were so insane. There was just so much growth and so much change. And I mean, I was so fortunate, like right place, right time. The work to be done so matched my interest and skill set. It was like this intersection of like data and customer. And those are like, I'm very social and I love working with customers and I'm like sort of a people pleaser, but I'm also a huge data nerd. So it was just like this really great fit for me. But yeah, I mean, I, I took on a lot of different roles. I got promoted a lot, but I just, I worked constantly. I, this is like sort of an unpopular thing to say now, but I like, I just never left the office before my boss did. I was constantly asking him for new work and, you know, sort of new opportunities just found me in that sort of an environment where there was just so, so, so much work to do. But after seven years, I was pretty burnt out. I also just like didn't know what I wanted to do next. I really loved my time there and I had had so much growth. And, I, and at that point I had moved into like sales and then a sales leadership role. That's like when I decided to, to leave and I went to business school, which I'm happy to talk about like sort of that whole decision-making process. But for me, it was like very much a personal one. I wanted to take a couple of years off if I'm like just sort of being pretty blunt about it. And I wanted to go to California So I applied to Stanford. I didn't get in. I waited and I applied the next year and then I did get in. I wanted to be in California. I wanted to be in tech. I wanted to like relax a little bit. 
Um, so it was far more of a professional decision than a personal one for me. And then afterwards, I did go back to Comscore for three years in sort of more of a GM type function for the media and technology sector. I'm curious, like, if you thought going to business school, like, how that impacted your career? Because I almost went to business school. I had gotten into business school before I actually joined Lattice, and then I deferred and decided to do Lattice instead, and that, you know, took a whole different journey. And so, yeah, I'm curious how you think that maybe helped your career in different ways. I mean, was it like the network side of things? Did you learn a lot? Like, yeah, how did you, how do you think about it? For me, it was definitely the network side of things. Like, when I think about what has helped me like progress and amplify my career out of business school. It was the network side, but I think it's, it's different for everyone. Um, But I think the network is massively helpful. And I think the geographic shift for me, which was like getting to Sanford, I knew I wanted to be in tech. I've always been interested in tech. Comscore was a tech company when I joined it. And just like having access to this market was really, really helpful. And after Comscore, you went to go work at TalkDesk, and I guess you moved to California uh, along the, the way. And it looks like you joined TalkDesk like kind of between Series A and Series B. Can you kind of paint a picture of what TalkDesk was like when, when you first started and what was your initial role? Yeah. Well, so like funny little side story here is, you know, by the time I left Comscore, I very much felt myself to be a sales leader. I ran a big sales team, public company, a lot of revenue under management. And I wanted a VP sales job in SaaS and I could not get one. No one would hire me for it. I had people offering me these like IC roles and I was like, come on, like I've been in management forever. And, and I, it, like I, it felt so snobby to me. And I met Tiago, the CEO of TalkDesk through a friend. And I told him I wanted to be VP sales. He's like, I've already got two VP sales. Like what else are, what else are you interested in? And like over a couple months of like meeting with him and then Gotti, who was our COO at the time, sort of it morphed into running the install base function, which we called client services at TalkDesk. So when I joined, God, it was probably like maybe like 150 employees, maybe like around 20 million ARR, give or take, and Series A. So we were like a pretty big Series A company. It was also split between SF and Portugal. Uh, So most of the go-to-market teams were in the US, uh, in San Francisco, and basically all of engineering was in Portugal. And it was pretty chaotic. I feel like all every company I've ever joined is sort of chaotic where it's like the company was growing really fast and trying to figure out how to scale. The other really interesting thing about TalkDesk was when they got started, the billboards were contact center in five minutes. It was like super SMB targeted. You know, we had maybe a thousand customers when I joined. I bet they were like 50 employees each or 50 like around there. And I joined right as we were trying to do a giant shift up market, which was ultimately massively successful. After three years, when I left, we were doing like 10,000 seat installations. So we were in this transition of like, oh man, we've really got to like professionalize everything. We've got to like make the product way better. We've got to professionalize our service experience, you know, getting like even just contracts in sort of a better place to pass muster on the enterprise side. So that was, that was like the main thing I was hired for. It's like, moving up market and figuring out how to scale this function. And let's talk about like the specifics. Like how did you actually go about doing that? Like what was the state of the customer experience department at the time? And then how did you sort of, you know, I guess rejigger that department to to sort of go up market and and to serve all these different audiences? Because I assume you kept the SMB customers as well. Oh, yeah. Then you had to service them, but then also go up market at, at the same time. Yeah. 
I mean, you know how these things look at this size, right? I mean, I think... So the main functions were customer success, customer support, tech support, and professional services. And it's probably 25 people-ish across the whole lot, across the whole um, team. And it was an extremely hardworking group. It was like one of the most hardworking environments I've ever been in. But they were trying to build the plane while they were flying it. And it is a complicated product. It's a mission-critical product, too, which is like something that I didn't quite realize until I joined. And you're like... You don't know it until you work at one of those companies where like, oh man, like we have to be on all the time. So it was massively responsive to customers, complicated product space. And like from an evolution perspective, you know, I mean, there were a couple like big moments of change where, you know, we launched sort of the new like enterprise CS function or another really big moment for us was launching a technical account management function where like, okay, we, it was a technical product. Our CSMs were not technical. That was not what we were asking them to do. So we ended up with this like sort of professional services-esque uh, overlay to our larger customers where we could sort of deliver ongoing light touch professional services to help our customers get value out of the product. But yeah, to your point, there was always this smaller SMB segment that we had to maintain. And a lot of those customers, like we had... Like I remember one of our top 10 customers had been like a, one of those like teeny tiny SMBs that had just grown into enterprise. So we were constantly thinking about like our scaled motion, our scaled CS motion as well, which I think we were like a little early on that. And now that's such a big part of customer success, success programming at so many companies. And I think one of the first things you did when you joined Talk to Us was go on like a customer listening tour with your boss around DC, Maryland, Virginia area. Can you talk a little bit about about that road trip? Yeah, I think we might have done two. I think we went to DC area once, and then I definitely remember driving with my my boss was Gotti uh, Shamia from New Jersey into New York at some point. And I think both of those were like around the start. I mean, obviously, it was like really good bonding time with my boss, but just incredible opportunity to meet with customers and hear what value they were getting out of the product and like such a powerful way to sort of onboard and get to understand the business problem. It also like sort of makes me sad to think about a little bit. Like when you, I mean, we could go on such a tangent on like remote work and the value of in-person, but like, I really like miss that. And it's hard to get customers in person these days because most, a lot of our customers are remote, but it was just such like powerful, effective use of time to be able to spend time with them and, you know, let them vent and hear what their hopes and dreams were for us as a partner. And when you're talking to customers, I think it's like really easy to get caught up in like the feature set and like how it relates to talk desk specifically, like the buttons yeah. and the platform and stuff. But can you talk a little bit about why it's so important to kind of understand just the customer's whole world and not just as it relates to your software, but just like all the things that they're going through to ultimately help you, you know, service them better? Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, you like can't talk about this without talking about the importance of multi-threading. Like I think often once we sell something to a customer, we get very naturally pulled into the details of the product, what works for them, what doesn't work for them, troubleshooting. And, you know, you get into sort of like admin relationship management. I spent a lot of my time at TalkDesk and like certainly as part of this, these like little road tours that I would go on spending time with decision makers, with senior folks that, you know, naturally the conversation is going to be up-leveled outside of the the like buttons and gadgets within the product. 
But I mean, at the end of the day, to answer your question, like you can't command share of wallet if you aren't connecting to something that actually matters to the business. You can't really get through hard times either, right? Like I think like moments of failure and conflict are they're really tense when you run existing revenue, when you run a customer experience team. But they're also like these really relationship formational moments where like when you can get through it with a customer, you like come out more on the same team. And you can't get through those moments if you're not able to connect it back to their business and their problem. I mean, this is far more feasible in enterprise than it is in like mid-market and SMB. And I know we'll, we'll talk probably more about those other segments, but like with talk to us so focused on the enterprise segment, like we had to know enough about their business where we actually felt like it's just like so cheesy, but like we actually felt like they're partners. Yeah. And people just don't buy software just to buy software, right? It's about driving to business outcomes and business transformation. It's really a means to an end. And yeah, I mean, it's important lesson that I always am trying to tell myself too at Doc as I'm like a founder building a product and like, look at this cool thing I built. But it's like, no, it's like, here's how it's actually going to help solve these big problems you're facing as a business. Yeah. Although it's tricky though, because in some product categories, they are just buying software, right? Especially when they're replacing it. So this is a situation that TalkDesk was in where you know, they would, they'd have some contact center software and they just didn't like it. And they're like, okay, we just want to find the better version of that. So sometimes even in the deal cycle, you never get out of that like feature by feature comparison and you don't get to the goals. Cause sometimes like you don't have to, you know, like if people know what software they want, you just need to be the best software. And that's why if you're not, you can get lazy and then you don't have those conversations with customers and you like can't get through the hard times. You can't get through decision maker transitions, and you don't have any connection to anything that actually matters for the company. You had mentioned earlier in the conversation that talked to us had a big sort of international footprint and there's a big engineering team in Portugal. Like, what was that like working with kind of the product team being in a different time zone, different part of the world? And I imagine, you know, you're dealing with customers, there's bugs, there's issues, there's a lot of product feedback. Like, how did you think about kind of uh, managing the workflow between those two teams? <laughs> I mean, the truth is I just like work 16 hours a day. Portugal and San Francisco have perfectly non-overlapping eight-hour days. So that's one way to accomplish working in that sort of an environment. I think it's harder. It's like so much harder than having everyone co-located. It requires a really good product organization, right? Because the way ours was set up, we had like some PMs in US and some PMs in Portugal, but basically all of Eng in Portugal. So product leadership had to be really empowered and really, really tuned into what was going on to sort of be that thread. You need like some glue and the product role was that. And then just like a lot of communication. And of course, this is just like so much easier when you're 200 employees versus when you're 2000, but like Slack, you know, a lot of phone calls. I don't know if we had, if there was like any sort of magic to it. It was just like people sort of worked longer days and did their best to like communicate quickly with each other. Yeah, we're experiencing this a little bit on a smaller scale with Dockery of some international engineers. And it's like, okay, when I wake up in the morning, I got to work with the engineers and figure out bugs and get my product feedback done because I have my little sliver to work with them. And they all stay up pretty, pretty late in their time zone. But yeah, it's a funny yeah. how it just changes your work day when you have an international presence. But you get, I mean, you get to work with insanely talented people all over the world. So there's a huge, huge cool. benefit to it. But you got to like, you have to time shift, right? You like wake up early, you like, do some calls before you're totally like alert. 
they're doing calls after dinner. Like, you know, you just find ways to, I think time shift into a way that it, that it's, that it's okay. Or you get really, really good at documentation, which was not the place that we were in when I first started at Talk Test, but I think we made a lot of progress uh, over those three years. Yeah. I want to be better at documentation. It's just so hard in the early days, like, cause you have so much shit to do. And so it's yes. like perfecting this document versus getting the thing done is, is always like a really tough balance that I struggle with. At, yeah. at all. Yeah. And you don't even know what your process is. So it's like, what am I documenting? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, all right. Let's shift gears and talk about your time at Lattice where we work together. From what I remember, like you joined Lattice, I think like right around our Series C. And at the time, I think we were going from Grant and Emily, who are amazing customer experience folks in the early days. And we were sort of transitioning to building out this like proper big customer experience department. Can you kind of talk about what it was like when you first joined Lattice? It was so fun. Yeah. So we had Grant running CS customer success and Emily running support team, customer care. I think they each had like 15 direct reports on the day that I joined. It was so wild. Like, I mean, yeah, painting picture when I started, I think we were like maybe like around a hundred employees. Like you said, we just raised Series C. We were growing so fast. I joined October and we were heading into the busy season. We had been so pleasantly surprised by the performance of new business uh, at the beginning of 2017. And CX was so understaffed and we were just like looking down the barrel of what is like, you know, normally November through February, just like everything's insane at Lattice all the time because there's just like so much growth, but that's like the performance review season and customers need so much from us. At the time, the team was way understaffed. Obviously we weren't in a good place with like good manager ratios. Emily at the time was actually moving into another role. She was going to go build the enablement function. So I think my first job was hiring a new leader, a new director for the customer care function. And I think like my first couple weeks were like, there were like two big things that we knew that we needed to do. One was segmentation. There was like virtually no segmentation. So you had like the biggest customers sort of commingled with the smallest customers. And like in a CSM's book of business, that would mean that like the littler customer wasn't getting attention because the big customer was so loud and needed so much from us. So like we had to like P zeros were like figuring out customer segmentation and figuring out customer health because we were, gosh, do you remember how many, like how many customers would we have been at that point? Like maybe 3000. Maybe it's all it's a blur. A I can't keep track of it. It was, it was, it was probably like 3000 customers at the time or 5,000 now, maybe less. I don't know, but it was yeah, a lot. And like, 2, 000, they, were, yeah. they were smaller and like we, we needed to figure out how to prioritize them and we didn't have any sort of measure of health. So we were, that was like a lot of the initial brainstorming is like, okay, how do we segment and how do we get a good scalable read on who needs our help? Can you talk more about customer segmentation? Because I think it was such an important thing that we did like across the business. It was like marketing thought, started thinking about it in segments, the sales team became segmented and then customer success as well. And like, I guess, what's the difference between serving an enterprise book of business versus an SMB book of business? Like, how does that impact sort of, you know, a customer success person's day-to-day life? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there, there's sort of like two dimensions One is a very like selfish dimension, which is like your risk tolerance as a business for churn, right? Your bigger customers, if you believe that servicing them more is going to drive a better retention outcome, you obviously do that. And that happens naturally anyway. But when you've got all the accounts sort of commingled in one big bucket, it means that 
smaller accounts end up neglected. So one is like the self-serving version, which is the unit economics of service. And then the other is customer need, right? Like how do larger customers, in what ways are they more complex? That they need a different level of attention, a different cadence of attention, potentially different sort of product workarounds, right? A lot of times CS fills this role of like, augmenting the product and things that the product can't do. A lot of times that ends up being things like reporting or config design. Sometimes it's like data entry. It really depends on the company. But usually your biggest customers are the ones like stretching your product and you want to fill the gap with service, uh, like, you know, lattice level service intervention rather than putting that burden on the customer or having their needs go unmet. And so Lattice has like a segmented customer success team, but I know that there's a few other kind of teams within the overall customer experience department. Can you talk about kind of the broader makeup of what um, customer experience looks like at Lattice? Yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot. So when I, like I said, when I joined, it was basically just customer support and customer success. And within customer support, what we call customer care, we had a couple people that were doing implementations for our smallest customers. So 2019, when I started... It was basically most of our accounts had a CSM. They ran implementation, renewal, adoption, et cetera. And then we had the customer care function that was sort of the layer across all. And then we had a couple people just doing implementation for our small customers. Very sort of unspecialized. What we have now within customer experience is we still have that customer care function. Within that, we have a knowledge programs function, which is both like QA, but also like help center knowledge base. We have a tech support engineering function that does sort of more technical integration API based support for our customers and is also the main interface to engineering for bug triage and resolution. We have a onboarding function, which was formerly known as implementation. They help our customers get live on Lattice and we like that we do sort of like a, an intense shepherding process over the first 90 to 120 days, sort of depending on the profile of the customer. So we have that as a separate, really focused like sprint uh, that we put our customers through. That's a separate function. Customer success is responsible for adoption and value realization for our customers. And then we also have account management which is the CSMs used to own all the basically the customer relationship end to end. We spun up account management last year to own a lot more of the relationship, like all the commercial elements, building relationships with decision makers, which is something that we sometimes struggle with. I think a lot of success orgs struggle with and sort of having like a primary strategic point of contact for the customer. So I want to spend some time talking about kind of each of those specific teams you, you mentioned. I think the first one, let's talk about oh, like... I forgot, I forgot one. Oh, oops. Which one? Advisory services. What's formerly known as advisory services is our people strategy group, a small in-house team of thought leaders, ex-practitioners that do... This is actually like really critical work. It's like they do a lot of the best practices development that we then disseminate through the rest of the teams because a big point of value delivery for Lattice is helping our customers design their people programs. You know, we don't hire HR people. We hire XCSMs, sellers, people that like understand the technology really well. So we have to empower them to be having more of the conversations around sort of the program side. 
Let's talk more about advisory services because I was actually one of the ones on on my list. Because like, I mean, yeah. So, so so the way I understand it, right, is like there's the buttons you have to click in Lattice to get things set up, but then yeah. there's the actual like people programs that you're trying to build, whether it's like an OKR program or changing the culture to one of like continuous feedback. And so, can you talk a little bit about yeah? what that team actually does for customers? Are they showing up on calls and doing consulting things? Are they running workshops? Like, what does that actually look like? And maybe how is that team kind of set up? Yes, all of those things. They certainly do a fair bit of one-on-one consulting work with customers, like CSMs or account managers will tap them in when we find a customer that like needs some like really sort of dedicated sort of consultation or brainstorming. We run workshops. We have like an OKR champ camp that we run regularly to get people. I think OKRs is like probably one of the best sort of categorical examples of how we need to help our customers because the software is great and it helps you manage and update and distribute information about OKRs. But like, you know, you were around Lattice when we rolled out our own OKRs. These are like, it is a sort of hard program to get going. And a lot of times I describe Lattice as like, you know, the last inch of a mile in terms of a people program, there's so much work that goes in through operations, through people teams to get these programs off the ground. And when customers buy Lattice, they're of course buying us for the software and the functionality, but they also just want to know like, y'all have 5,000 customers. Like what's everybody else doing? What do the best do? Like how are things changing? So PSG, our our people strategy group in partnership with our content team on the marketing side, produces the research and perspectives on that, like whether or not that be through a workshop model, distributing through webinars, customer case studies, live events. We run a state of people strategy report every year. That's a big survey of HR leaders. So we're just constantly sort of inspecting and understanding what our customers are doing and trying to find ways to package that for the benefit of everyone. Yeah, the the OKR example really hits home for me because I mean, that was Lattice's like first product and I even for before performance reviews. And I remember like that first summer we were trying to sell the product. And then what we realized was like, it just meant it, like companies would start fighting with, amongst themselves around what the goals were instead of yes. like actually buying the software. They're like, no, marketing should own this number, sales should own that number. And it was like so clear that you needed to add professional services around that sort of software experience, which we weren't prepared at all as like a 10 person startup at the time. But then eventually, you know, we, we kind of got our act together, built out a proper uh, function. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'd love to talk, go a little bit deeper about customer onboarding. You mentioned it's a separate team and I'd be curious like why a CSM shouldn't be a part of onboarding. And then just generally, like, how do you think about kind of building a strong customer onboarding program? Um, Well, first of all, I definitely don't think this isn't obvious to me that onboarding and customer success should always be separate functions. It like absolutely depends on the nature of the business. Um, and I think it has to do with sort of like the nature of the product and also the growth of the business. Those are like two big factors in ter- deciding like, do you specialize this or not? Because there's cost benefit. Like I think about it differently versus support. Like every company needs to have a great customer support function. That's like a non-negotiable, but this separate implementation function, I think it, I think it depends. So the reasons why we decided to separate customer implementations, customer onboarding from customer success, which used to run it um, on its own, there were like two main drivers. One was our growth, which you were around for so much of. Customers take a ton of effort at the beginning. It is 
I think unarguably the most important moment in the customer life cycle, because it's like, I often think about like, you know, they get so excited at when they're buying and it's like, we're selling them the dream. And they're like, if you don't deliver a great onboarding, it's like this like trough of disillusionment where it's like, Oh, I thought it was going to be this. And now this is like so sad. And so you need to like do a great job with getting time to value and like keeping the level the same as the experience in the sales process. So that takes a lot of effort. And if you've got a CSM who's got a bunch of accounts who are on onboarding and other customers who need their attention too, the customers who are in this like steady state are going to end up suffering because they just like, there's so much that has to go into the new customers. So that's like a really big part of it. And just like when you're growing as fast as Lattice has grown, it's not like that more economical to have the CSMs do it, right? It's like, it's better to specialize it and like be able to run these projects really efficiently. So that was certainly a really big part of it. And then the other part is like there is some variance in skill set around what it takes. Like there's a bunch of like integration work and like data transformation and like things that happen in the beginning that like CSMs might not be great at. And like when you think about what skills you're hiring for and training for. So I think the more I would often think about keeping these roles together in a world where you really need, con- like where there's a lot of benefit of continuity across the relationship from the start, where you're not necessarily dealing with the same sort of growth situation that, that we have at Lattice. And then um, also when you see like major overlap of skill set, right? If you're basically asking, if you're hiring like the same profile and asking them to do the same thing, that's like probably a good signal that you don't need a separate function. Do you think like, uh, I guess, successful onboarding or bad onboarding is like a predictive of, of whether someone's going to renew or churn at the, the end of the agreement? Like, do you think those two things are related? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like hugely related. I mean, you know, the Lattice product, we've got so many different programs that we enable. So onboarding usually like the first couple of months is like they'll run, they'll get one or two of their programs started on Lattice. But like people will be rolling out new programs all the time at Lattice. At TalkDesk, like it, the more you work in sort of like infrastructure or workflow, there's more of a like get it all done at the beginning. And I think it's like even more important in those sorts of environments because they're often coming off of another system and there's like a go live and that go live like really, really matters. And if you goof on that, you're digging out of that hole forever. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that like Lattice's onboarding is actually like very ongoing where it's like somebody starts with one part of the product and then two months later they start caring about OKRs or whatever it is and start rolling that out. Yeah, yeah. What is go live at Lattice, right? Like it is different for every customer depending on what programs they're launching with. And I, and I remember like one of your sort of first big initiatives was to work on a better customer health score, because I think that helped to get a sense of like how much customers were actually adopting and using these products, right? And can you talk a little bit about that, that initiative and why that was one of the first things that you did? Yeah, it was one of the first things that we did because we had so many customers and we had to figure out who needed us. And for the same reason that Lattice is sort of complicated in terms of figuring out like when is a customer live? Like when are they out of implementation? The same thing is true when thinking about adoption because there are all these different modules and what does healthy usage look like, right? Like one of our main tools is reviews. Is using reviews once a year more healthy than twice a year? Is it more healthy than like is four times a year better than two times a year? Like it sort of depends on the company. It depends on what they're trying to do in the product and like what their 
philosophy is and what their other programs are. There's like so much that goes into it. So it's hard to come up with like a brute force method of like, is usage good? So we really needed to come up with a thoughtful health score methodology that like accounted for the nuance and like complexity of the Lattice product set. So that was a really big focus and something that we have invested a ton into and we continue to invest a ton into. I spent an hour on V4 of the health score yesterday. And ultimately what we did was build a model that takes lots and lots of different product adoption signals, looks at the correlations to retention and builds a really like relatively complex scoring methodology based on what the customer has purchased and how they're using different elements of our product. The thing that is most important about its design is that it is highly predictive of retention, but it's not overfit. Like sometimes you'll see these health score models get built where like they're wildly prediction of retention. A lot of times people use red, yellow, green, right? And it's like, they're super predictive of retention, but like only 5% of your customers are green and 10% are red and 85% are yellow. And you're like, well, well, how the hell am I supposed to use this? So we also needed to design for a distribution that allows for like sort of a thoughtful approach to how we we manage our customers. Um, so this is something that's like evergreen. We're constantly working on like, you know, like Lattice ships product every day. Like we have constantly shipping new product. So we're also constantly having to update the health score as soon as we can on like, okay, you know, we have this new thing. It shipped six months ago. We've got like sort of material traction of usage. How does that impact the sort of health algorithm? Um, and that's just the adoption piece. We also have health scoring that goes up to sort of one mega score that is driven from customer self-report, like NPS, CSAT data. And then um, like anything that we can tell from like macro factors, like looking at sort of their employee trend or anything about like their firmographic that would give us sort of intelligence. Yeah, it was a really great initiative because it just added like some structure to the chaos of managing all of our different customers and what's going on. And I remember there were so many funny debates at the time, especially around product adoption where, you know, it's like, oh, they only use the product once a year, but then they keep renewing. And it's like, wait, that's weird uh, yeah. where somebody else is using it more and then maybe didn't renew. And so it's like, it's so interesting to figure out, okay, what they buy. It was a very complicated thing to, to sift through. And yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it has come a long way over the, since I, uh, since it I has, it yeah. has, it's <laughs> extremely powerful. Let's talk a little bit more about renewals. You know, it's been a, a hard couple of years for SaaS and renewals are in everyone's mind. And you actually published an awesome renewal playbook with, with emergence capital where you're an operator in residence can you talk a little bit about this renewal strategy framework? And, and we'll put it in the show notes too, but would love to kind of hear about it from, from your perspective. Yeah. So we published that a little over a year ago, like just as sort of the, what do we call it? Like tech downturn was sort of kicking off. We came up with a two by two, really just to help with customer prioritization. Like ultimately everything is in service of retention, um, but retention is the ultimate lagging indicator. So how do you focus? um, How do you intervene with customers ahead of certainty about their renewal decision? And so we came up with sort of two dimensions, which is like, one, what is the value that they're getting out of your product? And two, what is going on with their business? What is going on with their business health? And we talk about in this framework, like methods for understanding what their business health are. And then the method of understanding value, like at Lattice, is very much driven on our health score. Also, customer conversation and feedback, of course. 
but we put together this two by two that, that like, you know, for example, if a customer is getting a lot of value out of your product, but their business health is really low, right? Which you either see or hear from them. We encourage a strategy we call it be their hero, which is like back off a little bit on pricing, like think longer term about the relationship. I think a lot of companies got like pretty aggressive on pricing um, over the last couple of years. Like things, renewals were like so easy for so many organizations. Everyone had so much funding. There was so much capital, but really orienting in this segment on logo retention, right? Like you need to, you've got a high value customer. These people are probably like your promoters, get them through whatever is going on with their business in a way that like, you know, still makes sense for yours to keep them as a customer, keep them happy, not like play a short sighted game in terms of the sort of commercial structure. Um, so that's like an example of one of the strategies. And it's just like really meant to help you prioritize where, where you spend your time, like, and where you maybe stand your ground in terms of sort of the commercial relationship versus where you take different approaches. Yeah, it's a great lesson in just being empathetic to what your customer is going going through and then also just playing the long game, right? Like businesses, business success is built over years and decades and especially in SaaS where, you know, you want compounding growth and subscription revenue. Yep. You know, it's about like staying with it for a long term and working with your customers through through the ups and the downs. So yep. yeah, love love that framework. Let's switch gears and talk about customer marketing, which is something we worked on together. So yeah, we did a lot of different things from case studies to customers speaking at different events to different product launches. I'd love to hear kind of from your perspective, like how do you think about the relationship between marketing and customer success and what does good actually look like? I think this is an area of like massive, massive underinvestment in a lot of companies. And I also think customer marketing often becomes synonymous with customer advocacy, which matters a ton and is like so valuable for the company and so valuable for valuable for customers. But there is like so much more that needs to be considered when thinking about what customer marketing should deliver and what more broadly, what marketing should deliver for the customer base. Like, I guess just like point A, I think this is an area of underinvestment and there should be the same level of partnership, shared ownership between a customer org and marketing, as you see from new biz and, and marketing, like new biz and marketing are usually so tight and you don't often see the same thing with the install base. So I think that's like sort of the first mega point. And then I think about like the work to be done. So one is like the customer advocacy work, right? Which is like, how do you amplify your customers' voices? How do you find the happy customers? How do you amplify their voices to the benefit of prospective customers who are trying to make a decision on your product? to existing customers who are trying to find better ways to use their product or to resell the value within their organization um, and to reward customers who are giving back to you. I mean, Lattice is so insane in terms of our community and the level of love that HR people have for Lattice. And that's just like such a huge asset for us in sort of amplifying our brand and growing, growing. Um, but then I also think a lot about, you know, if there's another thing that marketing will tend to focus on, it'll be sort of like driving cross-sell, which makes a lot of sense. Like marketing is such an important part of the revenue engine. But um, one of the things we've really pushed for at, at Lattice is figuring out how marketing becomes more of a co-owner on, on adoption and value realization for customers. Like how do we 
use the marketing engine to get people interested, reinterested in using Lattice and running their programs on Lattice. Really interesting. And that's definitely an evolution since I was there too. Because I think something I always struggled with was, okay, so much like my main goal in marketing was, okay, new business, right? And pipeline, it wasn't like customer retention. And so it's like, I had to push my money and budget towards that world. And I think, you know, like Derek at the time was like the one marketer who was like assigned (laughs) to helping, uh, you know, the customer success team and doing everything he could for managing the case studies to adoption programs. But it's a lot for like one person to deal with. Um, And yeah, I'm sure it's it's, it's evolved quite a bit. But yeah, a tricky balance when marketing's goals are on the new business side. But then as companies grow, like it's all about customer marketing because most of your revenue is coming from your existing base. And so it, yes. like, it really changes as companies grow up. Yes. Yeah. Big time. I'd love to end today's conversation with your thoughts on kind of like the future of customer success and kind of where do we head from here? Like the two buzzy things in my head are like scaled customer success seems to be pretty in vogue. Um, yeah. But then also AI. And I got to ask the AI question. Like I see, you know, I was listening to uh, one of the founders from Intercom talking about how AI is updating, you know, chatbots and things like that. So yeah, I don't know. When you think about the future of customer success, um, where does your your brain go? my gosh, my brain goes in a lot of directions. I think a big category is around efficiency. I think um, organizations have pumped a lot of money into customer success organizations with the belief and observation that it moves the needle for customer retention and customer satisfaction and customer outcome. But there hasn't been a ton of pressure, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, on this job category for efficiency. We've seen some of this efficiency work through scaled success programs, which I am such a deep believer in. And we have a great scaled success program at Lattice. And it is made possible by good data, right? Like the right level of intelligence and triggers so that you can take some of the, some of like the natural individual CSM intuition that creates a really good experience for customers. Like how do you operationalize that? How do you automate some of that so that you're not reliant on a single human to be able to observe that risk or see that opportunity, but rather use data to funnel that into a team with the right level of information so that they can act on that? So I think that's a, I think efficiency in customer success is a, like the topic. I guess like efficiency and everything is sort of the topic. Um, But I don't see that reverting back to sort of the way we've invested in this function over the last decade. So I think that's one thing that's on my mind. AI, yes. I mean, across the entire CX tech stack, like chatbots are getting so much better. We're also taking so much work, so much work that like, and it's great because it's like work that people hated doing. Activity logging, meeting notes, recaps to customers, the stuff that like there was like some value in it because it forces you to synthesize and summarize and prioritize and all of that. But it's like this work we can now just totally automate today through AI. And there's obviously like so much more to come on that front um, in terms of how do we better leverage like the people that we have for like work that actually requires critical thinking and judgment. Um, And I think a lot of times CS in particular can sort of get abstracted from some of that work because there's a lot of like recurring work that has to be done or more like um, administrative work. I think the other thing that I talk to a lot of CS leaders about, maybe this is the last thing I'll say, is I think there's like at times like an identity crisis with CS, which is like, what is our metric? What are our metrics, right? Like in so many other roles, 
you know, it might look a little different at different companies, but like, you know, like you always like in sales, like you always have the sales funnel and you've got the stages and you've got like, you know, you've got your leads and your MQLs and like, there's like a system for things and you know what the measure is. It's ARR. It's like new bit, whatever, ARR, ACV. It's like that at the end. And CS is always accountable to retention, but retention happens by the time you know whether you retained, it's over. Like there's nothing else you can do about it. And it's a never ending game. It's not like a sales cycle that like begins and ends. And then the customer is a customer or they're, or they're not a customer. Like it can go on for years. So I think CS is, is as a function is trying to figure out like, what is like the equivalent of our funnel? Like what are our metrics? What are the metrics that are true across every organization? Because so often CS becomes sort of like this catch all of work that is just not either well done by the product or homed appropriately in another part of, uh, in another role. So it's like, it's do whatever it takes to make the customer happy and retained. It's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for the, for the conversation, Gillian. If, if people want to follow up with you, have questions, maybe want to eventually join Lattice's CX team, uh, where can they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakov. Thank you for listening.